Well, good morning, High Point. Good to be back with you after being gone away for a week. Thanks to Pastor Fred for filling in for me last week. I listened to the sermon, did a great job. Thank you, Fred. Appreciate it. You know, I was, uh, I was reading the other day about the upcoming Olympics, that uh, the Summer Olympic Games that are going to be held in Paris this summer in July. And, and I have to tell you that I've always enjoyed watching the Olympic Games and all of those finely tuned athletes. And I stand amazed at their appreciation, and I stand amazed and with great appreciation for their dedication, for their commitment, and the skill that they apply to their very various sports. And I particularly enjoy the track and field events with my favorite being the 100 meter race. Uh, because in the 100 meters, you get to watch the fastest men and women in the world who run at speeds that the average human can't even comprehend. But I also enjoy the relay races where four different team members run a leg of a race and then they pass the baton on to the next runner. And, and on these teams, there's a great deal of time spent in practicing the handing off of the baton uh, and do it in a way where it's executed well. Because if you don't do it well, you can drop the baton or you can slow down to such a slow pace that you'll lose the race. Many great teams have lost a medal due to the fact that they failed on the most important aspect of that race, and that is the transition point of handing the baton on to the next runner. Well, I'm sure you have heard the saying before that the Christian faith is always only one generation away from extinction. So in my mind, uh, that, that statement means that the Christian faith is just like a relay race. What I mean by that is one generation passes the baton of God's truth on to the next generation. Now, as a father, while my daughter Brooke lived under our roof, I had the sacred responsibility to see that my faith was passed down to her and the good Lord willing to pass it on down to grandchildren. As a pastor, I must earnestly seek to impart God's truth to you, to, to my, my church family, so that you will pass it along to those people who you meet. And as a Christian, I must use every opportunity to spread the gospel and to represent well my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. But here's the truth about all of what I just said. God cannot and will not hold me accountable for what people do with the truth that I give to them. I cannot answer for my daughter, Brooke, no more than she can answer for me nor can I answer for any one of you in this place that hears me speak the truth about Jesus Christ. But I will be held absolutely accountable for doing all I can do to ensure that the truth I know is passed along to others. My responsibility lies in the hope that the Christian faith will continue on into the next generation. That much I can do and that much I must do. Well, today, after being a week away, we're going to complete our series called the, the Blessing of Obedience. It's been our study on the life of Abraham, who is aptly called the father of the faith. And so in preparation, I'd like you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. 
don't have a Bible, the scriptures I'm reading today will all be on the screen and you can follow along with us. I'm gonna title today's message, Passing the Baton, because Abraham passed the baton of his faith in God on to future generations in a very, very big way. God fulfilled his promises that through Abraham, all the world would be blessed. In fact, the entire Judeo-Christian world was birthed through Abraham and his influence and his faith is as notable today as it was thousands of years ago. And so this morning, we are looking at the end of Abraham's life. He is now a very old man at 175 years of age. For the last nearly 100 years, he has lived in the land of promise. And his wife, Sarah, has now been dead for about 38 years. After her passing, Abraham marries a woman named Keturah, and with her, he has another six sons. That means that Abraham had eight sons altogether, six by Keturah, one named Ishmael, who came through the maidservant Hagar, and of course, the promised son, Isaac, through his wife, Sarah. And no doubt, he loved all of his children. But as I've stated all along, only Isaac was the son of promise. In fact, in Genesis 25, verses one through six, it makes this fact very clear, and I pray that God will help me as I read through all of these names from the New King James translation. You can follow along and you can snicker if I tear one of them up. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan began Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Ledeshim, and Lemmim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanach, Abadai, and Eldah. All these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Now please understand something very important here. By Abraham giving all of his sons a gift, he was honoring them all as sons. But by sending them away to the east, Abraham was indicating to everyone that Isaac and only Isaac was the son of promise. He knew his life was coming to an end and therefore he appropriately and strategically positioned Isaac to fulfill God's plan. And then Abraham dies. And all indications are that he dies in good spirits. In Genesis 25 verses seven through 11, it says this. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. The New Living Translation says, having lived a long and satisfying life. And it goes on in verse nine. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite. 
the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac and Isaac dwelt near Beer Lahai Roy. So this scripture provides us with four details regarding the end of Abraham's life. First, he lived to a good old age. Secondly, he was an old man. That's kind of repetitive. Thirdly, he was satisfied with life. And fourth, he was gathered to his people. Now, I think the first two that I mentioned there are pretty self-explanatory, so I'd like to go over the final two, and I'll begin with what the English version says, Abraham was satisfied with life. A wonderful, it's, it's really a wonderful way to put that, that he was satisfied with life. How many people can actually say that on their deathbeds? The truth is probably not as many as you would think. Many folks come to the end of their life and they, they carry regret for lost opportunities. They struggle with remorse over foolish mistakes that they have made. But as we've learned over the past five weeks or six, counting last week, Abraham had his share of both. And yet, as he looked back over the, the, the 175 years of his life in totality, he was satisfied with the life that he had lived. Now, any one of us who have studied Abraham's story, we understand that Abraham didn't have an easy life. It was just the opposite. Along the way, he went through periods of, of frustration and, and discouragement and even spiritual compromise, and he experienced more than his share of personal loss. He experienced the, the, the glitter of Egypt, but he also smelled the smoke rising from the ruins of Sodom and Gomorrah. He heard the voice of God, but, but later he lied to save his own skin. He had to give up his firstborn son Ishmael and send him away, an act that broke his heart. And as far as we know, Isaac and Ishmael never really reconciled, nor did his wife Sarah reconcile with Hagar. He wept when he buried his wife Sarah, but then he had the satisfaction of seeing Isaac take Rebekah as his wife. Certainly Abraham lived a full life. He packed a whole lot into those 175 years of living. But through it all, even in the worst of moments, he remained a man of faith. He never lost sight of the God who called him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to so many years earlier. And for that reason, and that reason alone, he was satisfied with his life when he died. The second statement I wanna address is what the scripture says, Abraham was gathered to his people. So who were his people? This does not refer to the pagan ancestry that he left behind in the Ur of Chaldeans. In Genesis 25, nine, it tells us what happened when Abraham died and his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah which is before Mamre in the field of Ephraim, the son of Zohar, the Hittite. Understand that this tiny bit of land represented a toehold on the land of promise. It was like a small title deed to the whole land of Canaan. 
And burying him there alongside of his beloved wife, Sarah, was a great statement. A great statement was made from that. First, that Abraham lived by faith in God's promises, and even in death, he still believed in God's promises. And secondly, by burying him there in the promised land, it was a continuation of believing in God's promise that one day all of that land would belong to them. So the torch of truth was passed down from one generation to another. That's why the last verse, one of the last statements in our text said, God blessed his son, Isaac. So just like the the relays in the Olympic games, one runner finishes his race and he passes the baton on to the next runner, the next generation who begins to run down the track of life. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob on to Joseph and across the generations, the baton of faith is passed. And it goes all the way from the Ur of the Chaldeans 4,000 years ago to Red Bluff, California, today in the 21st century. So in this closing message of this series, I want to survey briefly Abraham's life. And I'd like to take a look at what made him such a great man who is still revered by 2 billion people across the face of our world. What was the secret of his enormous influence? And and how has that influence persisted throughout the centuries? Why is he referred to as the father of the faith and a friend of God? Well, I want to share with you four obvious reasons that I, or things that I believe can answer that question. And here is the first one, as simple as it is. Abraham believed God. And you can certainly say more than that about this man, but not less. Supremely, he was a believer in the one true God. And no other fact can account for the remarkable life in which he lived. From the moment God first spoke to him as a prosperous pagan in the Ur, until that moment that he breathed his last breath, he believed in God. And it's not simply that he believed in God, but he staked all that he was, all that he had on the truth of the words that God had spoken to him. Thus, Abraham stands today as the preeminent man of faith in the Bible. That's why... In Romans chapter four, when the apostle Paul wanted to convince the Romans about the the true nature of saving faith, what does he do? He He illustrates it by referring to the life of Abraham. He even goes on to quote Genesis 15, six, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham stands as the model believer for both the Jews of the Old Testament and the Christians of the New Testament. And let me elaborate on that word Christian for just a moment. What is a Christian? Of all the many words that you could use to describe and to answer that question, perhaps the most basic is the simple yet profound word believer. A Christian is one who believes in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and who trusts in Christ and Christ alone for eternal salvation. 
Over 300 times in John's gospel, some form of the word believe or believer is used to describe what it means to be a Christian. Abraham believed God and his example became a pattern for believers of every generation to follow. He showed through his steadfast uh, belief in God and in God's promises just how we are to live our lives as followers of Jesus today in the 21st century. The second reason why Abraham is referred to as a father, the father of the faith and a friend of God is this, Abraham kept on believing. This was not temporary. He kept on believing. When God appeared to him in the earth, he promised to give him a son. And through that son, the world would be blessed. But as the years continued to, to pass, and those years became decades, there was still no son born to fulfill the promise that God had made to him. Finally, when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah was 90, Isaac was born. And I would like to remind you again of Paul's words as he describes the magnitude of Abraham's faith. It's found in Romans 4, 19 through 21. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Even though he was 100 years old, Abraham believed in God's promise that his body would produce a son, help produce a son, Sarah's body produced a son, while most men his age would think their body was as good as dead. I mean, this is a simple biological fact, ladies and gentlemen. The longer you live, the more body parts are going to wear out. Your eyes will dim, your hearing will diminish. Your hearing will diminish. That was for me. My wife just spent two days in the car with me and I'm a little hard of hearing and I refuse to wear hearing aids most of the time. What, what, what? She wants to, she wants to kill me sometimes when I don't do that. Your teeth will loosen or break. Your skin will wrinkle. Your muscles will droop. Doesn't matter how many these you do, they still get flabby down here. Your joints will ache, your arteries will harden, and your belly will swell. That has a lot to do with eating. And you know, all of you 20-somethings, you're kind of chuckling right now. You're laughing at those words, but let me tell you something. We are laughing right back at you. I know you think you're gonna be 20 forever. No, you're gonna be 50 before you know it. And you're gonna to learn to understand these words in a very personal way, and you'll remember this day. And you'll say, thanks for giving me the tip, Pastor David. Thank you for letting me know. Because no one is immune to the passage of time. Now in our culture, you'll find all kinds of products 
in the stores and on websites, providing every solution to try and stop those problems that I mentioned. Herbs and vitamins, amino acids, dietary supplements, muscle builders, prostate reducers, much more. All with strange sounding names and they come in capsules and powders and liquid form, any way you want them, it's your choice. But for all of their vaunted claims, the best these products can do is to slow the steady march of old age. Ever since Ponce de Leon searched for that fable fountain of youth, men have searched for ways to turn back the hands of time. And I haven't found anybody who has succeeded. Abraham, you gotta understand, had none of the benefits of modern day pharmacology. But it did not matter. It did not matter. There isn't much you can do when a man reaches 100 years of age. His chances of having a child, understand, were nil. And it was even more preposterous when you think about his wife, Sarah. I mean, she was so far past childbearing years that most of her contemporaries were now great-grandmothers if they were even alive at all. Imagine your grandmother calling you on the phone to tell you that she's pregnant. It just doesn't happen. There is no way, there is no way she could ever give birth. But against all odds, and a full understanding of the human impossibility of that situation, Abraham kept on believing in God's promise. And you know what that tells you? If God makes a promise to you, you hold on to that promise. As absurd as it might seem, you hold on to that promise because he will make good on it. It may not happen in your time, but he will in, in the time you would like, but it will happen. And when you think about it, Abraham's unwavering faith is just as much of a miracle as the story itself. Most of us would have given up years earlier or we would have never started believing in the promise in the first place, but not Abraham. He, he kept on believing, even when all of the facts were, were stacked against him. Recently, I read about the Chinese bamboo tree. It's a tree that when you plant it, it doesn't come out of the ground for five years. Year one, nothing. Year two, nothing. Year three, nothing. Year four, nothing. Then finally, in year five, it grows 90 feet in just six weeks. So the question becomes, did it grow 90 feet in five years or in six weeks? Well, obviously it took five years, even though most of the time it seemed as if nothing was happening. Here's the point that I wanna to make to you this morning. Most of God's greatest works in our lives don't take place overnight but over the years. In my life, or should I say in my way of thinking, God has always operated more like a crock pot when I wanted him to be a microwave. <laughs> he wanted to do the slow cooking process and I wanted instantaneous answers. But no matter how fast or how slow God works, please understand something. God can't do his work unless we are willing to keep on believing even when the facts are stacked against us. 
Someone once said, patience is letting your motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. But let me tell you something. If God is in charge, you can let that motor idle. It's okay. That's what Abraham did. And, and, and that's the example that he left for us. In order for God to be faithful, every problem doesn't have to be solved today, folks. Can you get that into your brain this morning? We are Americans and we want it now. We're used to getting food in a window in three minutes and eating in our car if we're that hungry. So we think everything in life should be that way and it's not. Get that into your head. God will work in his time. And, and he will do his work in his time if we will only be patient, amen? Well, here's a third reason why Abraham is referred to as the father of the faith and a friend of God. Though he stumbled, Abraham did not fall. Listen, Abraham was not a perfect man. You know that. We've gone through his life. He was far from it. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, we naturally look at his story and every one of us, including your pastor, becomes an armchair quarterback. We look at his stumbles and we think, hey, father of the faith, you need to get your act together. But when you read this story, you discover that he was made from the same human mold that you and I are. We're just harder on him than we are ourselves because he's in the Bible and we're not. But understand, he was human, just like me, just like you. He struggled with doubt and fear and discouragement and deception. He dealt with, with rebellion and, and blaming others, selfishness, all the other problems that beset the human race. And though he was a good man, he was still a man in every sense of the word, meaning he was no different from you or I. And I don't know who coined this phrase, but it's been said, we are all made from the same mold, but some of us are moldier than others. <laughs> Abraham was not the moldiest man in the Bible, but he certainly wasn't the cleanest either. Twice he lied about his wife calling her his sister in order to save his own skin and not trust in God that God would get him out of those situations. And both times he risked her purity for his own personal safety. Neither incident makes him look very good to anyone, let alone the pagans who are expecting so much more of him when they read about him. But by far, the clearest example of Abraham's moldiness comes from the sad story of the birth of Ishmael. And I know we've talked about it several times, but it is his life's biggest mistake. At Sarah's urging, he slept with Hagar, the young maidservant from Egypt. And no doubt Abraham and, and Sarah, they rationalized that their actions were, were only meant to help fulfill God's promise. But you gotta understand something, folks. God doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need your help. But we're always offering it, aren't we? We always wanna speed the process along. Lear, let me help you, God. You must be incapable to do this because you're taking longer than, you want, than I want you to. 
You see, it's never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. And that's what I believe these two did. And again, the ramifications of, of that wrong decision, that wrong action is still causing trouble in our world today. Because to this very day, the world suffers through one crisis after another going on in the Middle East, which is all a direct result of the sons of Isaac and Ishmael struggling for control of the Holy Land. So in light of all of this, how can we call Abraham a righteous man? Well, first of all, we call him that because that's what God calls him. In Genesis 15, six, let me read it to you for a third time. And he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Secondly, when we evaluate a person's life, it's crucial that we look at the big picture because direction, I believe, makes all the difference in the world. It's better to be one foot from hell heading toward heaven than one foot from heaven heading toward hell. He was always heading in the right direction. And for all of his weaknesses and all of his occasional uh, stumbles, Abraham's heart remained fixed on God. That's why he was called a friend of God, which is one of the highest compliments God ever paid anyone in the Bible. Let me ask you something. Do your friends ever disappoint you? Oh, somebody said yes. Of course they do. Are they still your friends? Yes, of course they are. Why? Because you know deep down inside they are still committed to you, even though they make foibles, even though they mess up. Well, that's precisely how God looked at Abraham. Aren't you glad, ladies and gentlemen, that your salvation rests on God's character and not your performance? Boy, I do. I love Psalm 37, 23 and 24. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. Also look at Proverbs 24, 16. For a righteous man may fall seven times. And what does he do? He rises again. Here's my point for sharing these scriptures with you. When Abraham stumbled and fell, he got up. That's what a righteous man does. A pig stays in the mud. But a righteous man gets up. He cleans himself off and he keeps on going in the direction that God sent him. Abraham is a great example for, for us to follow whenever we stumble. You ask God to forgive you for your sin and your stumble, but you don't let that experience set you back and paralyze you from moving forward. You get up and you keep walking the walk of faith, amen? Well, here's the fourth reason why Abraham is referred to as the father of the faith and a friend of God. Abraham never took his eyes off of heaven. Let's go back and take a look at that defining moment when Abraham and Lot divided up the land. Do you remember that? In Genesis 13, it tells us that Abraham offered Lot first choice. You can choose the land that you want to take your herds and your people. Even though he was older, Abraham was older, and he had the rights of the first choice, Abraham voluntarily yielded that right for the sake of keeping peace between the two of them. And Lot, as would be expected, 
chose the well-watered plains near Sodom. And of course, we know the rest of that story. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. But I don't want you to forget what God said to Abraham in response to this choice. In Genesis 13, 14 through 17, and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. There's that covenant. That's that promise I was telling you about, this, this nonsense between the Arabs and the Jews. God promised this land to the Jews. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. It's as if God said, don't worry about it, Abraham, because you yielded your rights. You did the thing that most people would never even dream of doing. It all ends with this land belonging to you and your descendants. God was reminding Abraham of what he had said earlier in Genesis 15.1. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And here's something that you must hold on to. God will be no one's debtor. When the books are finally balanced, no one will be cheated by God. Those who trust him, they will find themselves rewarded beyond their wildest dreams. And as we think about that fact, it's crucial to remember that Abraham lived and died in faith. He never saw the fulfillment of everything that God had promised. He knew that would be fulfilled through his son, but he believed that someday everything that God said would be true, would come true. To put it in modern terms, Abraham believed in heaven and that made all the difference. 2,000 years later, the writer of the book of Hebrews analyzed Abraham's whole life this way in Hebrews 11, eight through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, their heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. There are three phrases in that scripture that tell us everything we need to know. One, he obeyed God's call. Two, he lived in tents. And three, he was looking for a city with foundations. And verse 10 is the key. Abraham kept following God because he was looking for a city with foundations. That is a city that would offer permanent security. Only God could build such a city and indeed has already been built. And it's called the New Jerusalem. And its glories are described in the book of Revelation. And all the saints of God throughout the ages will one day live in that great city whose architect and builder is God. But between now and then, we're all on a journey. Every single one of us, everything built by man, will eventually crumble and it will fall to dust. Nothing made by the hand of man will last forever. 
Even the greatest monuments that we view today will one day erode through the passing of years. Everyone and everything is, is eventually forgotten. And so it is with everything in the world. So if you, my friend, are looking for lasting significance, you'll have to look outside of this world. Well, Abraham understood this principle exceedingly well. That's why he could give up the good land and take the desert scrub for himself and his flocks. He believed in God, and that kept him from coveting the things of this world. And don't believe for one second that his ability to not covet wasn't another one of those blessings that can only come from God in a relationship with him. Well, I have one final verse to share with you. When Jesus was debating the religious leaders of his day, he made a passing comment about Abraham that bears repeating. It's found in John 8, 56. He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham saw Jesus, and the sight transformed his life. And it reminds me here of that old chorus that we used to sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So if Abraham saw Jesus and his life was transformed, then imagine what can happen to your and my life when we not only see Jesus, but we receive him, we invite him into our lives as Lord and Savior. Well, here comes what I said when I began my message about my responsibility to speak truth to you, my congregation, regarding the things of God. This is my attempt to pass the baton to ensure that the gospel message goes out from here today to a lost and dying world through each and every one of you. I wanna share a bit of my heart with you this morning, if you'll allow me. First, I wanna say how happy I am to be your pastor. God certainly and clearly orchestrated our small family coming here to Red Bluff. And though at times we didn't fully understand everything, over time, God has revealed it to us. We talked a lot about this on our vacation last week, didn't we? Suffice to say, we are here because God clearly called us here and it was God's plan to have us here for such a time as this. And throughout our transition, and even up to this very day, some 11 and a half years later, I have been able to totally relate with Abraham's story more than any other story in the Bible. Because I feel as though we've been a part of writing one of our own, our own story. And every bit of it has involved trusting God, surrendering to God, at times sacrificing, and many times sheer obedience, even when you didn't feel like it. I'm not patting myself on the back. I just wanna say that the blessings that have gone along with all of that have been, short of, 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 have been nothing short of amazing. It's just been literally amazing the things that God has orchestrated in our life. See, God can take your story 
And he can make it far greater than it has been up to this point. And the reason that I've done this whole series on Abraham is because it's all about new beginnings. And since my family has been going through one for the past 11 plus years here in Red Bluff, I believe God wants you to experience one yourself. See, the blessed life that I've been talking about over the the six weeks of this series is nothing more than the results of a life fully dedicated to God. It's a life that by faith is obedient to God's leading. Because when we fully submit our lives to him, there is a satisfaction that is unparalleled by anything that this world has to offer. There is a peace that even within the storms, you are anchored. And it allows you to look past the physical and quit looking at things through your physical eyes and start to look at things through your spiritual eyes. And how many of you know that there's a huge difference between those two? The blessed life that I've been talking about here, it just happens. You don't have to look for it. It occurs every day as you keep Jesus Christ in his rightful place. And where is his rightful place? On the throne of your very life. He serves as the king of your life, the ruler of your life. He is the one you worship. And and if or when you remove him from that place of prominence in your life, you will experience great difficulties as you try to lead your life absent from his direction and his power. And as we've been going through this series, I think the one that gripped me the most was the week that we talked about apathy. Apathy happens when we simply go through the motions out of tradition, when deep down inside, there's really nothing going on in there. We paste on this face and we go through the motions. No fruit is being produced in our lives. There's no real joy. It's when serving God seems to come from a sense of obligation or or a habit more than from some kind of a deep-seated passion that we have in our heart. And sadly, if you were to do a survey among a lot of Christians in our world today, you would find a lack of passion. Now, is this because the God that we serve is incapable of stimulating a passion inside of us? No, nothing could be further from the truth. It's because as followers of Jesus, we've gotten casual about what he saved us from. And some have lost what the psalmist calls the joy of thy salvation. That joy, that fulfillment, the blessing that comes when we are tested It comes by being tested and staying faithful through the testing. But because we're impatient, we bail on God. Because we are impatient, we wanna help God along. Because we are so shallow in our faith, we walk away from God instead of holding on to his promises. And if we've learned anything from Abraham's life, it's if you stick with the Lord and his promises, he will make good on them. Again, it won't be always in your time or in your way, but it will be done. It involves trust. 
It involves obedience. It involves, yes, sacrifice and a willingness to prove your devotion to God. And I guess what I'm trying to do this morning is is to do that, to encourage all of you to get into the game. That's what I mean about get into life, get into ministry, get into doing something for the kingdom of God. Don't let your faith, your relationship with Jesus, make you like a fan in the stands who's observing the game, but will never put on the uniform and get out there on the field and play in it. God loves you so much. It's one of the reasons he brings you tests and challenges. He does so in order to awaken you to his power, to his wisdom, to his provision, to establish his priority on the throne of your life. Not on the fringe somewhere, not in a closet that you pull out every once in a while when you're trying to prove that you're a believer in Jesus. But if you fail, to engage in this whole process, it's never gonna happen. The blessings that you want so desperately in your life are not going to happen. You know, many financial gurus say that there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who play it safe and those who take risk. They say that those who take risks are eventually the ones who are going to prosper. Well, can I just say that I believe the same thing holds true? in the life of a believer. If you aren't willing to take some risks in your Christian journey, and I mean taking God at his word and trusting his promises for your life, how will you ever see God's blessings in their fullest degree? You won't. Your faith walk will never be what you want it to be, nor will you experience the fullness of God's blessing unless and until you follow God's leading and not your own. And sometimes it won't always make sense to you at the moment. And sometimes it will involve some risk. And sometimes it will involve vulnerability. And sometimes it will involve human fear. And sometimes it will involve stepping out of that comfort zone, that little cocoon of comfort that we love to be in. It's our, it's our steady place in life. I'm happy here. I'm comfortable here. I feel really, really good here. It's warm and fuzzy, and God wants you to break out of that thing. Every bit of it, what I'm talking about there, will result in spiritual growth. You don't like how you're feeling right now about your faith, then grow. Take God at his word. Step out in faith and do something. Get involved. Don't just sit there and say, change me, God. You've gotta be a part of the process. You'll never put yourself in a position to fully trust God if you don't take some risks. If you don't step out, in faith and do some things that maybe are uncomfortable for you. The only way you're gonna break through discomfort is to experience it. And then you'll say to yourself, that wasn't that bad. I can do this. When you don't do that, folks, what happens is you lack testimonies to share. And we sang a song today that said, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the what? The word of our testimony. So if you and I don't have a testimony to share, how are we gonna overcome? Do you see what I'm trying to say? We gotta get in the game. There's gotta be some action. There's gotta be some activity. 
you're, I know you're happy with your salvation. That's great. You should be. It's the greatest gift anybody could ever give anyone. But you should want more. You should want to get into the game. Because it's while being in the game that you begin to live and experience the abundant life that Jesus promised. That abundance promised to Abraham, it was the promised land. It was a son that through whom a great nation would be birthed. But the abundance promised to you can be a whole lot of different things. God's not asking you to go to a different land. Maybe some of you, he is. Maybe somebody in here is being called to the mission field and you're frightened to death. I don't know. But the abundance that God might be promising you could be things as simple as peace of mind. Divine health, happiness, security, a good reputation, a peaceful home, favor in the workplace or your place of employment, confidence, financial blessings. Yes, God blesses people financially. Discernment, understanding, a wonderful family relationship, wisdom, contentment, a faith that is literally unshakable. The list can go on and on and on. These are all promised to you, but you'll never fully live in them until you get serious and committed in your faith with God. It's time to begin to live for Christ fully. God wants to rock your world. He does. He wants to show you things that you have never seen or experienced before. He has a storehouse of blessings that is so vast and it is just waiting there for people who will truly love and fully trust in him. So the question becomes, will you? Will you quit worrying about what other people think? Will you quit looking to the world for your answers and for your direction? Will you take the title of being a follower of Jesus and make it more than just a title, but a day in and day out lifestyle? Men, will you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord? Abraham did. And even through his mistakes, and you will make them too. I know, I could write a book on them. He stayed faithful to God. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. That should be our heartfelt desire to be loyal and committed to him, especially when you look at everything that he has done for us. But did you catch the other part of that scripture? It says God will show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. There's always a condition in the scriptures. We always like the God will show himself strong. Praise God, be strong for me, God, but we don't like the part whose hearts are loyal to him. That's simply another way of saying God's blessings flow 
through a deeply committed relationship with Jesus. My heart breaks for Christians who observe blessings occurring in other people's lives, but they're not seeing any of their own. But it doesn't have to be that way. And again, I'm not trying to make God out to be some vending machine in the sky. I believe you know the flavor of which I'm sharing this with you. God wants to do great things in and through you. He wants to bless you in ways you've never experienced, but you've got to be involved. You need to get involved. Scott, will you come forward? Help me close this down. Last week in my absence, Pastor Fred introduced you to the Bible Engagement Project, which is our plan to get everyone in this church into the Word of God. And this project, when fully engaged in it, engagement, did you like that? I used the word. Will take us through the Bible three different times. I don't mean we'll be reading it word by word, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but story by story in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And every story will cast its focus upon the arrival of Jesus. The when, how, and why of our need for a savior. And I want so much that every one of you would become a part of this effort. Next week, I'm going to talk about this myself. I had Fred do a kickoff and I'm going to talk about it next week. And I wanna offer you many reasons why you need to be a part of this. It's like I said in week one of this series, God called Abraham to a destination, to a place. And that place was called the promised land. And though he may not be calling you to a new location, he is calling you and every one of us in this place to a new level of faith with greater understanding of who he is. And you can either rise to a new level of faith and fully commit your life to him or you can ignore his call. And if you do, you will continue to live life in mediocrity. But that's not God's plan for any one of us. So my prayer is that you will choose more of God. That you will come to realize that there is nothing, there is no person, no thing, no activity in this world that is more important to you than your relationship with Jesus. One of the things we talked about was sacrifice. I just don't wanna take a night of the week and be a part of this. Why? Why? I'm as busy as any of you are. We're all busy. Nobody here's got a corner on busyness. And some of you think you're busy and you're not busy at all. You're busy with stuff that fills your day. I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm just speaking, speaking the obvious here. Sacrifice is you say, if I wanna grow and I wanna get in the word of God, then I better make time for it. And it hasn't worked so well that I've opened the Bible up and read it myself. So maybe it would make sense for me to get together with a group of five, six, seven, eight other people. And every week we will be in the word and not only will we be in the word, but we'll be encouraging one another through the word and we'll be holding each other accountable through the week and looking forward to getting together again next Thursday night when we continue on in what we're studying. That is a form of sacrifice in that you are taking time that you might be doing something that 
at this time you might enjoy more, but I guarantee you that after a period of time, you will say, why haven't I been doing this my whole life? Because you will be growing. You will be tested by God and in your growth, you will handle that testing and you will grow and you will see God's blessings in your life and you will begin to have testimonies that you can share, not just in your small group, but to people out there who you're talking with. We all need a testimony. Certainly our salvation is a testimony. But see, God's not done with you with salvation. He's just begun. He's saving you from the pits of hell so that you can be a soldier in his army and that we can all be a part of leading others into a relationship with Jesus. High point, the best thing I can say to you this morning is that the time is short. Jesus will be returning for his bride, his church, of which we are a part of. Therefore, it is essential that each one of us is ready, that we have salvation and not just salvation, but that we live our daily lives for Jesus Christ. And the best way to do that is to know who we are living for. We need to grow deeper in him and allow him full access to our hearts and to our lives. So as I thought about how I'd end this service today, I'll do what Abraham did whenever God did something in his life and build an altar. But wait, I don't have to build an altar. There's already one here. So I'd like to invite you to come and seek the Lord at this altar. Perhaps this series on Abraham has challenged you to step up in your relationship with Christ. If it has, then come down here. Let God speak to you. One of the things I liked what Fred spoke in his sermon uh, that I listened to, he said, you know, sometimes you come to the altar to listen. Not just to pour out all your junk. Sometimes God got some stuff he wants to pour out on you. And if we're constantly moving and, 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 and talking, and we're doing all the talking, how can we possibly hear what God is saying? He wants to direct your life. He wants to show you how to live it but you gotta give him room. You've also got to invite him in. Let Jesus know that you want more of his activity going on in your life, he will give it to you. Be a willing vessel to be used and, and guided by God and you will experience the blessed life that I've been trying to convey to you over the weeks of this series. While the worship team sings, let's spend some time at the altar seeking God's direction for us in our life and our walk with him. And then I will close in prayer. While those at the altar continue to pray, they can stay here as long as they would like. I ask you to bow your heads with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Abraham. It just puts into focus, God, that we are flawed human beings, every single one of us, and yet, God, you use us just like you used Abraham. You bless us just like you blessed Abraham. God, you can do things through us that we never dreamed or imagined. We lean upon you and trust in your power to do those things which we are incapable of doing on our own. My prayer is that everyone in this place would, would desire and seek you in a deeper way, that they would, they would go deeper, and see your hand at work in their lives in ways that they've never seen before. Because there's encouragement that comes from that. There's joy that comes from that. Lord, that we would experience the joy of our salvation day in and day out as we see ourselves being used to help other people 
to lead them to you. So God, I pray that you would bless every person in this place today, that your power would be manifested in each one of us, that we would step out in faith and do things that we didn't dream we could do, and that we would see the blessings that come as a result from that. We want to live the blessed life, but Father, we want you more than the blessed life. And so I pray that that would be our prayer every single day. More of you, Lord, more of you. And Father, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have. Lord, let those conversations be designed to build people up and not tear them down. And Lord, let us be bright lights in a very dark world that needs something bright. Let the love of Jesus shine through us in such great ways that people would know that we are Christians, as the song says, by our love. So God, I pray that you would bless my family as church family as we go our separate ways. Keep us safe from sickness and illness and disease. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us so that we can come together again as a family and worship you in spirit and truth. And as we leave here today, Lord, let us go in your love, extending that love to others. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you for being here.